all mystery fiction, crime fiction, true crime, it all shares the sense of a previous better time that has been lost or a future that could be better if those who aspire to it work for it. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hi again, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today I have with us author Cecilia Titchy. Cecilia is a native of my original hometown, the Steel City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She is an award-winning author and faculty member at Vanderbilt University, where she is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of English and American Studies, Emerita. Her books span American literature and culture from colonial days to modern times, and most recently, she's been focused on the Gilded Age, which from 1870 to 1914, that prompted her book on Jack London and another on seven activists in that tumultuous era. Tichy's What Would Mrs. Astor Do? A Complete Guide to the Manners and Mores of the Gilded Age, which was published in 2018, segues into her new mystery series, the Val and Roddy DeVere Gilded Series, starting with A Gilded Death, together with Murder, Murder, Murder in Gilded Central Park, A Fatal Gilded High Note, and this fall, uh, the new release of A Deadly Gilded Free Fall. Cecilia is also at work on her fifth historical mystery in the series, A Gilded Drowning Pool. Her books have been reviewed in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and elsewhere. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Cecilia so very much. And one of the things I liked most was our conversation about the act of writing itself. And we really explore some of the nuances in what it means to write a readable work. And I think you will really enjoy listening to not only Cecilia's very spectacular insights on writing, but also she's kind enough to share with us and unpack some of the story of this murder mystery series that she is in the process of completing. And I must tell you, it, it is absolutely riveting. So I hope that you will enjoy this episode and grab yourself a cup of tea and settle in. Cecilia, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to be an author. Yes. <laughs> and you most certainly are an author. You've done numerous books, both in nonfiction and fiction. And actually, because I'm one to dive, I don't spend much time in the shallow end. So <laughs> go right over to the deep end and take a dive. 
And what really strikes me that I would love to have you share about, because it's not often that we get authors who are so well published in both fiction and nonfiction. And I'd love to, and I notice there's also some intersectionality in mm -hmm. subject matter of your fiction works and your nonfiction works. And so there's a lot of questions competing right now in my brain. But so maybe we just start with like a high level view of that relationship of writing novels, writing nonfiction books. I believe, did you start more with the nonfiction was, is kind of my impression or? Well, as a professor, uh, I better have started with nonfiction <laughs> or I would not be here talking to you today. I would say this, you're telling a story, whether you're in nonfiction or fiction. It's been suggested to academics, and I wish more of my tribe would take this to heart. Either think of yourself as hosting a party and welcoming a guest and taking the obligation hosting to introduce your guest to one and all to provide a rewarding evening so that at the conclusion of the evening everyone feels the party has been worthwhile mm -hmm. alternately <laughs> think of yourself as welcoming on a sailing vessel a passenger and the vessel is proceeding from here to there, and the journey along the way needs to be rewarding. Are there sights, sounds, points of interest? They need to be made known and explained. So by the time one goes down that gangplank at the end of the voyage, one has had a rewarding voyage. So. In that sense, nonfiction needs to tell its own story. Mm -hmm. Of course, there must be notable facts. <laughs> yes. uh, and in nonfiction as well, as an author, you're sort of jousting with other authors. You need to kind of acknowledge their importance because any book enters into a conversation already underway by other authors. You're joining that group, but you need to make way for yourself. And sometimes it's a grudging <laughs> pushback that you need to undertake so that you can clear place for your own story, tell it well, try verbs, and, <laughs> and so that there could be something for a person to remember a month later, 10 months, 10 years, maybe. And so I won't say that transitioning to fiction is an easy call, but I would say that narrative is a deep-dyed part of what I have needed to do for a very long time. And I will mention that in the early part of the first few years of the 2000s, the aughts, I did write some mystery fiction that was you know, that appeared that was published and then went back for instance to a book on jack london who is an undervalued public intellectual in our history i would argue with anybody poor jack is relegated to animal stories for 11 year old mostly boys call of the wild and he published 
50 books in 20 years. Wow. And when called out as a socialist, mm. he would say simply this, are we not social beings? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and don't we deserve better governance and organization than we now have? Now, those two questions, it seems to me, are fundamental and paramount. And he asked them today. <laughs> absolutely. This very day, this very yeah. day. And so turning to mystery fiction now, here's the linkage, I would say, to my nonfiction. I wrote a book. This is nonfiction on muckrakers then and now. Barbara Ehrenreich recently died. I had the chance, the privilege of interviewing her for my book on muckrakers. A book on key progressive figures, including Louis Brandeis, for whom in their lives, social justice cried out. Yeah. Whether it was in law, in schooling, in medicine, Dr. Alice Hamilton, who recognized working in Chicago, living at Hull House, MD physician, that the lead workers, lead mm -hmm. paint, remember that Dutch boy lead paint, mm -hmm. that those workers were not suffering from hangovers. <laughs> and they weren't just sick with whatever was going around. They were being poisoned by the materials they worked with. And her decision was not to be a muckraker, but to try systematically to help business leaders understand the importance of industrial medicine and how it should be conducted. Anyway, here's my point. I had been writing about people who saw society awry in need of remediation of various kinds. That is what mystery fiction often does. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. You know, and it could be Agatha Christie, you know, on the softer <laughs> she's side. The yeah. She's blind as soon as you see that, yeah. But it could be on, far on the other side with Patricia Cornwell, for whom it's not bloody enough ever. <laughs> and there's a whole spectrum. but. I think all mystery fiction, crime fiction, and for that matter, true crime, which is another category, I think it all shares the sense of a previous better time that has been lost mm. or a future that could be better if those who aspire to it work for it. So either it's an attraction toward a past golden age or a movement toward a better future. That's mm -hmm. where mystery fiction, crime fiction positions itself. So whoever the villains are, the culprits are, they are instruments of injustice and they need to be called to account. Mm -hmm. So no matter whether, and again, mystery fiction, I would divide it in another kind of bifurcation. Uh -huh. There are plot-driven mysteries and they work like clockworks mm -hmm. and you don't have an investment in the characters you just want to see who did what it's gear wheels and sprocket arms yeah. and belts that are moving not okay. my favorite read yeah and clever clever they better be clever well they all they have better to be, be because if they don't have that substance it's real hard 
to uh, yeah oh Doesn't, yeah does not pull me in anyway continue Would not. but <laughs> the other way is to portray characters who are themselves of we hope some interest have mm -hmm. some depth mm -hmm. and are involved with other characters frenemies friends intimate partners that's the side where i'm putting myself with my Val and Roddy DeVere gilded series set in the gilded age, because so much of my work in scholarship on uh, the library and the classroom has taken me there. After all, it's Mark Twain's own era. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that's his phrase. It's his title with a co-authored book with Charles Dudley Warner in 1873. Yeah. the gilded age it's not as good a novel as twain was later to write it was his first venture into long fiction the age was also called the era of steam and steel yeah and the age of energy but that gilded captures the sheen of course on the top glittering you know and then the base metal underneath and the novel does tap into both the newly rich the aspirant rich lobbyists prowling the corridors of the capital crooks of all kinds uh, con men and con women too he's <laughs> an equal opportunity gendered writer in that book right but the Gilded Age took hold, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was thinking when you were making that comparison with the nonfiction and looking at the social ills and the different players and how that has a lot of parallels with mystery fiction. And the other parallel that occurred to me is in a really good character-driven mystery novel, it's very clear that the perpetrator often feels justified, right? They feel like they're doing the right thing. And that they're a good person <laughs> and I think we also see that with some of the bad actors in our social nonfiction situations as well it's uh so true self-justification there's a deep vein of self-justification among the malfactors <laughs> and the protagonists can verge on self-righteousness Mm -hmm. And that's to be warded against in writing as well. The protagonist needs to have a moment of reflection. Didn't I go too far again? And so that the reader is rewarded with a personification that can meet the reader and the writer in this kind of fictional third world with a third ear attuned and so that in historical mystery fiction the present and the past kind of interact with each other it's sometimes said you've heard this what historical fiction does is tell us about our present mm -hmm. it does so in a way that lets us have a lens through which we can see ourselves better yeah. without feeling sort of pummeled and on the run and shrinking so it's really a tall order uh -huh. and then i will say if i can you know tip you off about what other mystery writers will say you can get your book going right out of the box off like a rocket and 
as it's rounding the turn, the pace picks up, it's accelerating. The resolution is just almost there. The long, slow middle, that <laughs> is really the challenge yep. <laughs> to keep interest, to keep recharging the story, new dimension of the characters. And further, if you're doing as I'm doing a series, the last thing you want is the reader who says, oh, I saw this in the last book. Or, oh, right. isn't, this, isn't this in the <laughs> other one too? So, and, and it is the last and if, you, <laughs> and if you've got a, you know, a, a rampant drunk in one book, he better not come back in the next one. You've used <laughs> somebody else. I don't know. So it um, keeps one on one's keyboard toes, so to speak, yeah. all the way through. Yes. Um, right. The series is a whole nother thing. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Let's go into that a little bit. What else would you say about writing a series? Well, some of the issues that one must face. So in my series, bearing in mind that I've done a lot of research, both in American literature and in American studies, a field in which we extend from literature itself to the context. Mark Twain was in Nevada, in Virginia City, gold mining, silver mining especially. It's where he got his start on the Territorial Enterprise newspaper. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. I thought, my character, Valentine Louise Mackle, grew up in the Colorado Rockies, and then when Papa struck it rich, they moved to Virginia City, Silver City, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It was at one point the richest little city in the U.S. Mm. So I went there. And for those who are interested, not in Disneyland, but in the real deal, <laughs> I hope that some renovation money will be ponied up Virginia City because those wood sidewalks need yeah. a little help. But yeah. they're those same buildings. There's that territorial enterprise. You can go into a silver mine. You can see how the ore was processed. So I bring it home to my character, Valentine Val, born on St. Valentine's Day. And she's <laughs> a silver heiress. She's going to be a silver heiress. Who was Papa? Papa. In the book, he is John Mackle. He is based on John Mackey, ah. an Irish immigrant, flees the potato famine, gets to Brooklyn, works in the Navy Yard, bracing ships, ship timbers goes out west and he mines silver and he's so smart and he keeps his eye open. And in a vein that others feel has surely been exhausted, wow. he buys up all the rights and he mines and he becomes as rich as any of the rich in, the, um, in America. Yeah. Now, and in fact, the School of Mines at the University of Nevada, Reno, is named for him. It's the John Mackey School of Mines. So he is Papa on whom I base Val's Papa, and she 
In fact, she is based in someone else. Also, I'm not going to go into, you know, spend all our time on where my characters come from, <laughs> but just to say they come from where they actually were. Mm. What brings her to the East is a visit by a New York Knickerbocker family, several ah. generations, and father's investments have gone south and the family is at risk of a forced sale that will lose them all their their yacht, their mansions, um, their thoroughbred horses and carriages, everything. They go west hoping that investments in a silver mine will pull it out for them. They bring their son, uh, Roderick, Roderick Wyndham DeVere. Uh, perfect. Roderick, perfect or Roddy. Roddy. <laughs> has grown up in New York, and as a teen, he has spent many a Saturday at the P.T. Barnum Museum, Lower, Lower Manhattan, but he got bored looking at whale's teeth and mummified, and he went down the block to a bar where a new invention was astir, cocktails. <laughs> and we don't think of the inventions of the Gilded Age, including cocktails. We think of Edison and electricity. Maybe we think of Mr. Otis and his elevators. Cocktails were also an invention. Wow. And there was a maestro of the bar named Jerry Thomas. And for a while, he had tended bar down the block from the Barnum Museum. And my character, Roddy, was fascinated by the, the stirring and the shaking and the ice and the fruits and the liquors. And he became interested and wanted to learn it. And it's because his parents found a book on mixing drinks, The Bon Vivant's Companion, <laughs> in his room, and they feared their son was addicted. They took their <laughs> son with them to Virginia City, and Papa... Papa, Val's Papa, the silver magnate, struck up a conversation with Roddy's Papa, dissuading him from any of these mine investments. Meantime, Roddy saw Val and she saw him. And he asks, would she like to see a trick? This was in the silver dollar bar and saloon and dining room. He stepped over to the bar. He asked for two silver mugs with heat-proof handles. He asked for scotch hot in one mug and hot water, sugar, and some lemon juice in the other. He asked that the scotch be set alight, and he began pouring from one mug to the other a streak of blue flame, and the drink is called the Blue Blazer. And it is a famous drink from very early in the Gilded Age. And I have asked bartenders, ever make a blue blazer? And the answer I get is once. <laughs> <laughs> For obvious reasons. <laughs> so here's the love of one another's lives. The silver papa has not long to live. Val inherits all that money. The DeVere family's fortunes are restored. She moves to New York with Roddy, and their life 
in New York in the winter, in Newport in the summer, and they find themselves in the first of the novels, which is titled A Gilded Death. They find themselves trying to protect a good friend and a recent close friend of Val's who's helping her figure out which utensils to use at all these dinners. Roddy and Val are trying to protect her from a poisoner who is stalking society. And they become sleuths. And so in the aftermath, when after that Gilded Death escapade concludes and the summer ends, they return to Manhattan only to find that young women are being strangled in Central Park, ah. practically their front yard, front mm -hmm. lawn. They live at 620 Fifth Avenue in a French chateau Roddy's parents built before the investments tanked. 620. And Mrs. Astor was living at 641. Ah. Right now, that property is a synagogue. Oh, okay. um, right now. But that's where Mrs. Astor's last mansion stood. And so there are murders in Central Park and various complexities. And there'll be a, a detective and there'll be revelations about the history of the park, about oh. Seneca Village, about those who lived there and were ousted when the powers that be wanted to build a park, their Hyde Park, their Bois de Boulogne, their Central Park, Olmsted and Vox, but who was there before? And might there be somebody haunting this park? Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> it's reminding me a little bit of Devil in the White City, where he brought in Eric Larson, I think. Yes, it's Eric Larson. Yeah, and he brought in actual history of the Ferris wheel and the World's Fair in Chicago. And Olmsted was actually part of that story as well. That's right. And then wrapped it around this fictional story of the serial killer. Yes. And, and I and, love that's one of my favorite novels. I love oh, that. I read it twice. And of course, it's no longer on the bestseller list, but it's still selling briskly. Yeah. Uh, and it's and, been out for yeah. a while. <laughs> afterlife, big afterlife. Yes. A stunning book. And maybe taking a tip from Larson, I too include uh, historical actual events. For instance, yeah, in this most recent one, the fourth one, uh -huh. a deadly gilded free fall. And Love for several, part. yes, for several <laughs> chapters, I mean, the question is, who fell down the stairs? And was that person pushed, uh. nudged, drugged, or just <laughs> slipped down in those long skirts? Well, we'll find out. But several chapters in Chicago, and I could take the opportunity to bring in the joblessness after the White City Fair, after Eric Larson's Devil in the White City, the White City closes. And all those who have come to Chicago for jobs and worked at the fair, once the fair ended, the unemployment rate was horrific. Beggars, mm -hmm. crime, all sorts of things. And here's Jane Adams with Hull House. 
And so Val, who has joined a group in New York that has ties to Hull House, visits Hull House. And on my bookshelves, I probably have 3,000 books. <laughs> Bearing in mind they're wood products, I hope the floor doesn't go to my <laughs> library. Um, but several books on Hull House, Jane Addams, and I have written about it in scholarship. So just pull it out and be sure that the quotations are what Miss Adams actually said mm. about democracy. Mm. I'm going to paraphrase because I can't quote right now. Mm. What she said is, we have made much political progress in our democracy, but our social democracy has lagged far behind. And this is what we must attend to. And so she and the ladies who were living there at Hull House on Halstead Street would button up their shoes and go out into that street, Halstead Street. <laughs> The Chicago politics pavement hadn't yet quite come. The <laughs> pavement was cedar blocks, and in the rain, they would start floating. Mm. Undaunted, those women called upon their neighbors. And pretty soon, every Saturday, the children in those tenement slums, little children could come to Hull House and be bathed. Mm. Bathed by Jane Addams and her fellow Hull House sisters, but also wealthy ladies who came in from this, we'll call the suburbs, to help out, who donated serious money and who did hands-on work with the Chicago ones who had just come from all over the world. There were 29 languages spoken wow. at this time. That's right. And so the English classes at Hull House completely filled all the time. So I didn't do so much as to stop the momentum. This is a trick. You're going to bring in something historical. Right. Yeah. It has to count. And it has to count for the story. It's got right. to help in the momentum. So being careful, is that long paragraph too much? Should it be broken into two? And then the most, I have to say, I'm sure every writer feels this. Do I have to cut it? <laughs> yes. And sometimes that question goes chapter wide. Yeah. This yeah. chapter has to go and just take a breath yeah. and hit delete or, <laughs> or hit, move it somewhere. The earliest, I think it was Samuel Johnson. It was like probably the earliest quote about killing your darlings. Uh, <laughs> and that goes way, way back. So I, I'm going to assume that every writer. <laughs> and you better. I mean, because you've got to be an editor too. And so you lovingly worked over that phrase for an hour and a half. <laughs> well, guess what? It's got to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slice. So your, I don't know whether it's your blue pencil or your pen, but it's, uh, yeah, killing your darlings. There it yes. is. It's, yes. yes. Or it's your uh, control delete or whatever it is nowadays. Right, right, that. right. Well, I advise other writers in the writing group, create another file. 
and uh-huh. call it whatever extra yeah. and just put it there. Maybe yep. you'll come back to it someday. Maybe you'll find something there you can use. So it's not gone. It just moved out of the exactly. way. Well, you know, that's in my book on how to write a book. <laughs> but I talk about create a slush file. And that's what I call it as a slush file. I like that. I'm copying that. Well, I'm stealing yeah. from you. Slush file. Yes. Right. I'm and I just say, keep it in there. And it also can help to maybe indicate where it was. So, you know, chapter one under the subheading, whatever, just so you remember the context of where it was in the past Good point. And, and just leave it there. And then you can park it there and you don't have to worry about discovering after writing 70 more pages that you actually need that whole section or whatever. That's yeah. right. A good point. Yes. So drive it into the slush and park it. Exactly. <laughs> park it in the slush. <laughs> right. That's right. Yes. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> well, I just love that you look at and thank you for sharing these. I mean, of course, now I'm completely enthralled and, and want to go read every book in the series. And what a fun age too to be writing about. And I'd love to hear now a little bit more about how do you, because you said you also approach nonfiction similarly, and nothing against your profession of academia, but I have found that many books written by academics are very dry and not very entertaining and you don't feel like you've been on a wonderful journey and i love to be talking with someone who clearly gets it because sometimes when i'm working with clients who've done a lot of academic writing i kind of have to untrain them when we're mm-hmm. writing with mass market because what is considered not only appropriate but it's often preferred in academic writing is just a disaster for the mass market writing. Uh, just a quick example would be passive voice, right? Oh. So it was observed <laughs> that. <laughs> you know, I have said in the academy, so many of our sentences begin with the word although. <laughs> One of my colleagues, unnamed, said, if I can understand the first two pages of a scholarly book, I'm not interested. <laughs> now, we could laugh. But you know, here's something. I'm just as aghast about this situation as clearly you are because so much brain power yeah. has gone into these projects. Yeah. So much knowledge there mm. to be revealed. And so many people beyond the academy thirsty and hungry to know some of these things, bring them out. I would also say that the last, and I'm saying this because I am now retired, I might not say this if I were not emerita, okay? Right, yes. Mm -hmm. I think literary theory has done damage to our writing and to our teaching and to students' zest for reading. Mm. Because in the past, before literary theory, in the classroom, and maybe maybe in the book, think of Robert Penn Warren teaching at Vanderbilt University, my university, and writing those wonderfully well-received books. 
what the instructor was, was a guide to some of the very best writing and how to enrich the reading experience even further. Mm -hmm. Then came literary theory, and the great work was suddenly riven with fault lines, ready mm -hmm. to collapse upon itself, hardly bearing relation to anything better than a grocery list or a carburetor that's in your old car not working. And here came this arcane language, highly technical, as if once again, you know, two cultures in the scientific revolution and it's C.P. Snow and it's people in the humanities as if we were in the neurosciences. Right. You know, and so young students come into the room and they're eager and their eyes are open and they're going to look at maybe something so challenging as a Faulkner novel and they get hit with deconstruction and a whole vocabulary that has no resonance and they struggle and frankly all across the country they've dropped english english departments are really at a kind of crisis point wow um, i didn't know that that's, that's um, yes it's not how shall i say i hate to tell tales out of school one compensation is that english has hired film theorists and people in popular culture. And so filling out the ranks more broadly, uh, there always will be a Shakespearean expert and maybe someone in a certain early modern period. But along with literary theory has come styles of, I won't say a style, styles of writing that are prohibitively difficult Yes. To engage. And so who cares? The field of academic work that has not yielded so much, historians often write well because mm -hmm. they want people to know what they've learned and why it's important and why we should all know that and mm -hmm. be able to read it with pleasure and be rewarded. Mm -hmm. So I suppose I've poached as an American studies person yeah, in the right. history departments, offices, and sections of the library to see what they're doing, telling a good story. And it was, I have to say, my literary agent, Deirdre Mullane, saw that something about Cecilia Tishy and Jack London and got in touch with me and said, <laughs> I'm interested in academic writers who are also writing for a larger audience. Yes. Might that be you? <laughs> good for her. Good for yeah, her and good for me and good for and me too. Yeah, I mean, this has been, as you can tell, a pet peeve of mine for a long time, probably since I was in college. <laughs> but one of the things that, as I've been in this field for helping people with books for over 30 years, I made a distinction in my own mind that if you're writing a book and you're sharing information or you're sharing a story, it doesn't really matter because at the bottom line of it, the industry that you're in is entertainment. <laughs> and if you and fail to understand that and you think you're in the information industry, you're going to write a book that is very painful to read. <laughs> and if I may say the word entertainment Needs, and you know this, I'm just underscoring exactly what you've said. 
Sure. That word needs to be understood in its breadth and its depth. Yes. It is not a cheap word. Right. And the best entertainment is so fulfilling. Yes. Um, all kinds of ways. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we are nourished. 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 Yes, yes. Exactly. And when authors forget that their primary job is to have an entertaining work, and I agree with you in the highest sense of entertainment, then everybody suffers. And just to plus something that you said, because we are talking about brilliant minds with tremendous value to offer, but the delivery method is not so delicious. So people will not want to consume it, you know? And unfortunately, too often, scholars are, what should we say, are encouraged or sort of flagellated to think of their readers as a handful of people uh, in other schools. Right. <laughs> so it's a peer group of maybe a dozen people instead of a public that could include that dozen. And so that spiral gets smaller and smaller. And as a wonderful editor at University Presses, Barbara Hanrahan said to me, it is unsustainable, to use that word that's now almost a buzzword, but it's unsustainable to operate a tenuring system in the academy in which in the front end come the faculty and out the library comes the scholarly book that's expensive to produce, that needs funding from the very university that's paying the salary. It's a subvention and it can't go on. The money is not there in the long term to support it. Who's going to start blowing the whistle on this system that is ultimately a cul-de-sac? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And it's it's cannibalizing the institution. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And something else that occurred to me too around this, I think another thing that I have struggled with in the tone of academic writing, it doesn't have to be that, is, but it also destroys the reader's ability to really connect with the material. And that is to write as if you are speaking in a lecture uh. versus having a one-to-one -one conversation. Yes. An excellent, and it's so visual, that image. You're speaking, you're speaking to a large audience. You are, and they want to hear you. Let them hear you. Let them hear you. Yeah, you've got to recognize, if the reader doesn't feel seen while you're sharing, they don't connect with the material. Right. The it, nearly. It's a, exactly so. And maybe writers should think, when you're watching TV and you see an interview and you're interested in the interview, and what you realize is that the interviewer and the subject are really talking to each other. And you're closed out and you start to feel that it happens. That is also a tip. Are you opening the gates wide, the doors wide? Are you letting people in to mm. what you know? Yes. Yeah. 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 
you know, kids' books do such a better job. Maybe <laughs> advice that a highly trained academician before <laughs> embarking on revising that dissertation. Go read a few kids' books. I was going to um, say, you have to read uh, Redfish, Bluefish as a prerequisite. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Okay. All right. All right. Wow. Okay. Boom. All right. Well, that, wow, what a wonderful dissection of that distinction. And thank you for having that conversation with me because I learned and I hope our listeners, I'm sure there's a lot of gold in there for our listeners if they want to. This this has been a lot of fun (laughs) and a reward. I feel rewarded. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, I would love to ask you if you would be willing to read us a passage from your most recent novel, A Deadly Gilded Freefall. A Deadly Gilded Freefall. (laughs) I will do so. No passage. Let me tell you where this is. Val and Roddy have been in Chicago. This is the spring of 1899, and Chicago, they have learned, is a pretty rough and tumble place. They learn that Mayor Carter Harrison was shot dead at his front door just a few years ago by a dissatisfied office seeker, knocked on the door, the mayor opened the door, dead, and the Haymarket bombing that went national. No one knows who threw that bomb that killed seven policemen at a rally for the eight-hour workday in the Haymarket. (laughs) So here's Chicago, and it's got this history of bombs. Now, Roddy and Val are staying at the Auditorium Hotel, an innovative hotel on uh, Michigan Avenue, innovative because the ground floor was commercial, commercial retail, and the hotel and the auditorium, which is still used. In fact, um, Roosevelt University has some of the auditorium hotel spaces to this day, and the auditorium is just glorious. And upstairs, Roddy and Val are about to leave. It's the night before they're going to leave, and they've had this time. As we would learn, Chicago had not finished with Roderick and Valentine DeVere who would depart the city by the lake with fair warning and a threat. We accounted carefully for the hours from our dinner to the New York Central train that we would board in the following morning. Planning a good night's sleep, we took a handsome cab from the Grand Pacific Hotel to the Auditorium Hotel. The lobby was quiet and the desk clerk nodded as we stepped into the elevator leading to the eighth floor. Arm in arm, we walked softly along the carpet hearing no voices from the rooms on either side of the corridor. Once inside our suite, we undressed and quietly began gathering up our things, having decided to forego the evening maid and valet service. Working side by side, Roddy and I folded and packed. Tomorrow, I agreed, would be time enough to talk over our dinner this evening. We slept fitfully, as is often the case when travel looms. Neither of us was to recall any sound outside our sweet door that night. I heard no one in the corridor, nor did Roddy. At dawn, we washed and dressed quickly, and my husband telephoned for a bellman who was to come promptly with a luggage cart. When he knocked, we expected our luggage to be loaded, but instead, the man called us into the corridor where a box lay in the hallway carpet just outside the door. 
tied with a red ribbon. The box was topped with one single red rose. The wrapping paper sparkled. Roddy, I said, a gift. Someone has, Madame, the bellman said sharply. You must not, not touch it, Roddy said. We three stared at the box. I will summon the watchman, said the bellman. Please do not touch the box. We fear it might be. His lips quivered. Roddy said aloud what we all thought. Might be, he said, a bomb. Mm. Woo! That's a one-page chapter all by itself. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. I've got chills up and down. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much, Cecilia, for being here with us on The Author's Corner. It's been terrific. Thank you so much. All right. May we meet again? Yes, I hope so. All right. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 